0: But as we think about even the song we have just sung, oh sing a song of Bethlehem, why would we sing a song of Bethlehem? We want to go this morning to a passage of Scripture uh, that communicates to us and shows us why this news about the birth of Jesus and why the celebration of the coming of Jesus is tied to Bethlehem. Would you open God's Word to Second Samuel chapter 7? This morning the sermon, the message will be from... Uh, verses eighteen to twenty-nine, but it would help us, especially for those who are just visiting us, perhaps for the first time, or if you were not with us last week, it would help us to read the whole chapter to understand what it is that David is responding to. So, I'm actually I'm going to read from verse one all the way to the end of the chapter, Second Samuel chapter seven. We will read what is known as the Davidic covenant, and then the message this morning will be on the response to this Davidic covenant, the response to God's kingdom promises. Let's listen to God's word this morning as we are gathered together. God's word says, Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time when that I have appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel... ...have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build your house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant... ...so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken... And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in praying and asking God to bless the preaching of this message and uh, the hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, you have revealed to your people, you have revealed to David and now to us through this word, your plans with your kingdom. Father, we pray that as I preach this word, you would speak through me, that you would help me in proclaiming this word, and that you would help us all hear it. And may the reign that you have planned and designed to have over your people, may that reign be clear over us and to us today. We pray that in the name of Jesus, uh, through the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. The words we have just read uh, are known as the covenant God made with David, or the Davidic covenant. While David took the initiative to build a house or a a temple for God, uh, the Lord graciously but firmly said, No, thank you, David. The hopes I have for my people are uh, not yet ready for me to Stay and dwell with them in an established house. Uh, so not yet. And God said, actually, I'm about to do something amazing for you. I will build a house for you. Not a house of bricks, not a house of mortar, not a house of, of wood, as David uh, thought to build for the Lord. A house of, of some special features that only God is able to to plant in, to put. So here's a picture of God the builder of a house for David. And just to refresh ourselves, the the four special features that God promised to build into this house for David had uh, unique elements, and these unique elements are a house of kings or a dynasty of kings who would come out of David's body, a throne that will last forever, kings who will have a father-son relationship to God, and an unending love that God would show towards the kings coming out of David's house. House of kings, a throne that will last forever, a father-son relationship, and an unending love. These are the features that belong to the Davidic covenant to the house God promised to David. Uh, these features are not fairy tale elements, though some of them may uh, come across as so to the modern year. Uh, this is the reality that God has purposed to bring to His people. God promised to establish a permanent kingdom with a throne that will last forever. And the king will be God's son, Enjoying God's unending love. Friends, these are amazing promises that God made to David, but he made him for the sake of his people. What we get in this text is in a passage that we will focus on in the sermon this morning, in the second half of the the chapter from verses 18 to the end. What we get in the passage this morning is to see how David responded to these amazing promises. God's promises are not only um, good for David, even though David is the original audience of these promises, but these promises are also relevant for us in our lives today. And this means that David's response to these promises are a guide for us today, how we too should respond to these great promises. Uh, We're not the direct recipients of these promises. These promises were made to David, not to us. And yet, David's response shows how the people of God, who would be the beneficiaries of these promises ultimately, how the people of God must respond to these promises. So let's look at the way the first king responded to these promises and learn from him how we too should respond To these kingdom promises, this prayer that David prays is divided up in two major parts, uh, two big areas. Uh, The first part, verses eighteen through uh, through twenty-four, we see David's—I would call it—humble awe. David's humble awe, and then in verses twenty-five to twenty-nine, we see David's confident dependence. David's confident dependence. So what does this passage teach us? It teaches us to respond with humble awe and with confident dependence on the God who is able to do what he promised. Respond with humble awe and confident dependence on God to do what he promised. Let's look at David's prayer and how it begins. When David hears what God plans to do for him, his response is, It's rich in praise and awe towards God. We see that in verses 18 through 24. But the beginning of his response has some surprising elements. I wonder if you saw and noticed the very first detail the narrator would tell us about David's response as he just heard these amazing promises from God. Did you catch his body posture? David went in, presumably to the tent where the Ark of the Lord was. David went in and sat before the Lord. And he's about to respond to God with prayer, but he is doing so in this moment in which all he can do is just sit down before the Lord. Now in chapter 6... When David brought in the Ark of, of, the, of the Lord into Jerusalem, uh, we have picked up on some details about the way David responded and his body posture when, the, when he brought the Ark into Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, chapters 6 and 7 need to be read together. They are a, a special section in the book of Second Samuel where the narrator tells us what this king did to bring the presence of the Lord through the Ark of the Covenant close to him. That's chapter 6. And now in chapter 7, we get to see how this king desired to establish a permanent dwelling place for for the Ark of the Lord. They are two chapters that belong together. But the response David has in chapter 6 is very different than the response he gets in chapter 7. If in chapter 6 he was so overcome by joy that he had danced before the Lord, because finally the Ark of the Covenant could be brought safely into the capital city, he couldn't believe it. So he, he humbled himself by dancing before the Lord. But here... When God reveals to him what he is about to do for David to build him a house, a permanent house, a permanent dynasty, David's heart attitude and his body is so affected that he remains motionless. Have you ever thought that there's something spiritual even in just sitting before the Lord? Even that can be an act of responding appropriately when you don't know what to say or what to do. Just sitting before the Lord. Oh, friends, even this body posture is a clue of David's heart attitude, an attitude of humility. Have you considered that the simple act of stopping from your regular activity and simply standing still to focus on God in prayer is an act of humbling ourselves before God. Now the rest of verse 18 unpacks David's humility as he reflects on himself and on his house. Look at verse 18. After David sat down, he says, Who, who am I, O Lord? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? By this time in David's life, there were lots and lots of stories of dangers that David had experienced, that God had rescued him from. So David says, O oh Lord, you have brought me so far. And then in verse 19 he says, And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O oh Lord. In other words, as big as these past rescue operations were, in God's eyes they were like a drop in a bucket Especially in light of the promise of a kingdom and a throne that will last forever. And of kings who will have a father-son relationship to God. And of God's unending love towards David. David could really say that what was ahead of him was definitely way greater and grander than all the things he had experienced from God and with God so far. Here's a man at the apex of his career. He has reached the top of the ladder. He accomplished what he had hoped for. And yet he realizes, he realizes that all the past experiences that he has had with God are a small thing compared to what God was planning to do beyond him. But as David ponders at what he just had experienced in the past and what he had just heard that God would do for him in the future, David's, David wonders and is in, at awe about these promises. But notice how he begins his wonder at and awe about these promises. He starts with a phrase, who am I? And what is my house to get Such promises. Oh, friends, these words come from a heart that does not think highly of itself. There's no entitlement. There's no uh, impression of, wow, I've worked so hard for this. Wow, it was so worth persevering. There's no attitude of, I deserve this reward. Or, it's important to believe in yourself. The world tells us, that we must learn to believe in ourselves if we are to accomplish great things for ourselves. But here is David, faced with this amazing promise of God, and, and his first words coming out of his mouth are, Who am I? And what is my house? No self-boasting, no self-congratulating, quite the opposite David knew that credit for this promise is not to be attributed to himself, but to God entirely. And David says in verse 20 and 21, For you know your servant, O Lord God. You know your servant. Perhaps David here is thinking about those times when he was ready to give up. When he had gone into the Philistine land and made some pacts with the Philistine king Achish. Perhaps he thinks of some times when he was really on the verge of of losing heart and hope. And some of the Psalms written in those times uh, reveal that David's heart was not strong all the time. It was not an iron-clad heart ready to endure Every and any adversity, there were times when he was ready to give up, when he was hopeless. David says, Lord, you know, you know your servant. You know that I, I don't deserve these promises. Perhaps David thought of his own household, his brothers, how jealous they were, how much they hurt him, how much they fought with him. Perhaps David thought of how, yeah, there's, there's so many signs of ungodliness in my household. I don't, my household does not deserve these promises. And then David says in verse 21, okay, here's why you're making these promises, O Lord. It's because of your promise and according to your own heart that you have brought about all this greatness. To make your servant know it. In other words, David says, these promises are made because of God's initiative to promise they're made because of what was in God's own heart. Not what was in my heart and not because of what was in my family. And this is, the, this is a pattern of the entire plan of salvation. That the initiative is always with God, not with us. And this should drive us to humility. What we see here in God revealing to David his plans for the kingdom that will be forever is a pattern that God takes the initiative. It starts with God. It starts in God's own heart. And and the best response we can start with is, who am I to be the recipient of such kingdom promises? But David's response is not merely his humility. Starting with this place and this attitude of humility, David goes on to develop his awe at God's greatness and at the greatness of his plans for the kingdom. Verse 22, David utters phrases that, he sh- that show clearly that he was nothing short but in awe of God. Verse 22, therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you and there is no God besides you. David comes to see greatness in this moment, not in himself but in God The fact that God makes these amazing promises to David are a sign not of David's greatness, but of God's greatness. And David wants us to know that greatness and to grasp it. It's not in David. It's in God. How easy it would have been for David and for his heart to immediately begin to think, how great I am. It was worth it. All the suffering was worth it. David's heart is directed at greatness, yet not his, but God's. This is a moment to celebrate. This is a moment to be in awe of, but in awe not of himself, but of God. And notice how David unpacks the greatness of God in, in, these, in, this, in this verse, verse 22. There's two short, powerful phrases that capture, I would say, in a dynamite, dynamite way, uh, the greatness of God. And you can memorize these words. You can hang on to these phrases. Use them in your prayers. Uh, repeat these words throughout the week. There is none like you. And there's no God besides you. Just hold on to these phrases: none like you, O God. None besides you, O God. That's the greatness of God. None like you. This is the amazement and the wonder that David's heart feels and experiences. The greatness of God's plans lead David to see the greatness of God. Friends, when was the last time that in your own life, in your own walk with God? that you have come to a place of just being amazed by the Lord. Is there something in, in your life that God has done recently uh, or, or a posture or an experience where you just have come to see the greatness of God in a, in a fresh, deeper way where all you could sit is just being in awe of God to realize, wow, Lord, there's none like you. Wow, oh, Lord there's none besides you i wonder i wonder if you can in your own heart affirm those in a not just in a rational way but in an, in an affectionate way i wonder what might be things in your life right now that actually compete for that reputation with god that actually are in a competition and perhaps have even overshadowed the greatness of God in your life or seeing the greatness of God in your life? What are the things in your life that you actually have given either equal consideration or even greater consideration or importance than the value and worthiness of God in your life? Well, friends, this battle of the heart is with us every day we are easily in awe of other things. Or even when we are in awe of the things that God may give us, we actually fail to see the awe in the God who gives them to us. So our hearts just are are robbed of the experience of being in awe of the greatness of God. Friends, we cannot be in awe of God if secretly in our hearts we hold other things to be equal to or greater than God. We, we, We will not be in awe of God if we allow other things to be in greater awe for us. Can you say that in your life there's no one like God? Or that in your life there's no God beside God? At lunch today, if you're going to spend lunch with others, if you're not going to eat by yourself, would you consider talking, what are some things in your life that recently, in the last season, God has convicted you that other things have overshadowed this picture of there's no one like you, oh God? What are some things that particularly your heart has been easily attached to and made more of than necessary so that your heart cannot right now say? Or it's been difficult to say, wow, oh Lord, there's none like you. Share that over the lunch conversation. And if you're having lunch by yourself, consider sticking around the service and just hanging out until somebody will go to lunch somewhere and you can join them. Don't eat by yourself. Have lunch together with others. But here the aim is to consider what is in your heart that you and I, what is in my heart that you and I uh, are Lured to see bigger than the Lord. Let David's own response lead you, perhaps even convict you, to consider, do you see the greatness of God? Can you say there's none like you? Can you say there's no God besides you? David's humble awe of God helps him to have a high view, not only of God. Surprisingly, when David has a high view of God, the follow-up is that he actually has a high view of God's people as well. I wonder if you see that in verse 23. After, after in 22, he says, who is like you? In verse 23, David asked, and who is like your people, Israel? Now what causes David to have a high view of the people of God? It's not their strength or abilities. It's not their special pedigree or background. David has a high view of God of the people of God because of God's initiative to rescue them in their neediness. Do you see it in verse 23? Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people? David has a high view of God's people because they were in need of rescue and God took the initiative to go and redeem them. God's redemption of Israel was not to give them independence but to make them belong to the Lord, to make them be his people. When David looks at God's work with his people in the past, David cannot help but have a high view of the people of God because of the greatness of God's work for them in the past. Now today the people of God whom God went to redeem is not limited only to one nation because God's salvation was designed through this one people and one nation Israel to use them to bring God's salvation and redemption to the ends of the earth. So for us today in the 21st century, The people of God include all those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus for salvation. All those who hear the voice of the great shepherd, Jesus, calling out to them, and they hear his voice in the sense that they hear and are convicted that they need to repent and turn to him. And those who hear it and those who are his respond. They actually respond to the voice of the shepherd. And they come to him. And they are included in this one big gathering of a on a pasture, on a sheepfold. And Jesus said, I have sh- other sheep that are not yet part of this fold. He's talking about those who would come to beca- become part of the people of God even though they were not Israelites. Friends, this gathering of people right here is one manifestation of the people whom God is calling to himself, gathering for himself. Every day, every, every week when we gather, every day as we live like the people of God, we are his people whom he gathers. The question for us is, can we have a high view of the people of God because of God's redemptive work in our lives as well? Uh, some people have a hard time having a high view of the people of God. And this could be because of the various reasons. Some might be legitimate. Others might be illegitimate. An illegitimate reason for not having a high view of God is that perhaps some are so absorbed in our individualistic thinking that we see no need or value in thinking about the larger group of people we belong to. Uh, Western civilization has moved into this very individualistic type of thinking. It's just me, me, me. And we don't think of our identity in relationship with the larger group of people that we belong to. And particularly that has affected us as Christians in the sense that even for the people of God, um, we can bring that individualistic thinking in the way we see and evaluate our relationship with God. So that we only think about me and Jesus. Only what Jesus does to you, just your own private walk with the Lord. And yet the Bible is so clear that we must also see our identity not only as individuals but also as belonging to the corporate people of God. So some of our, some, one of the reasons why people may have a, a low view of the people of God is because of our individualistic thinking of Western society that has seeped into our religious life. Others may struggle to have a high view of the people of God because of past negative experiences that they've had with the people of God and at times caused by the people of God. David also knew much about negative experiences at the hands of the people of God as he had lived years and years under a hateful king who has showed his hatred towards him and persecuted him in many ways. Reality is that the people of God who bear God's name act at times against God's ways, short of God's plans. And those experiences often affect our ability to have a high view of the people of God. Do you struggle to have a high view of the people of God? If so, what are your reasons? What are the reasons you might have for not having a high view of the people of God? Of being able to say, like David here, and who is like your people? And David, for the, for the Old Testament times, who is like your people, Israel? Can you say, who is like your people, God whom you have redeemed. There's none like them. You see how humility, uh, a humble posture of ourselves, enables us to have a high view of God and be in awe of God. And then a corollary, a a follow-up of that, is that we actually have a high view of the people that God redeems. Not because they deserve it. Because of God's redemption has been so powerful and so awe-inspiring in their lives. Oh, friends, David has a high view of the people of God, not because they acted well or consistently all the time towards him, but because God has rescued them in marvelous ways. So be in awe of God's people because of God's salvation for them has been Awe inspiring. David responds with humble awe at the God who is great, who has great plans for his people, who created a unique people for himself, and David thinks highly of them as well. Do you? Is this how you view God and his people? Well, the the prayer that David prays as he's sitting down before the Lord and he's in this moment of just humble awe shifts to another response. The other response is confident dependence on God. Confident dependence on God. We see this in verses 25 through the end of the chapter, verse 29. David shifts from amazement of God's greatness to expressing his confidence that God can actually do what he promised to do. It's one thing to hear great promises from God, but then to wrestle in your heart and wonder, will this actually truly take place? Will I be the beneficiary of these things? Some things may seem to us to be so, so great that are, they're just too good to be true, and our hearts can sometimes wrestle with, us, with this doubt uncertainty of whether or not God will actually do it. Will it really be this way? Do you have those thoughts? Do you know those thoughts in your heart about certain promises that God has made? In this second part of the prayer, David casts his confidence that the Lord is able to do it. And actually, David shows us that he's confident that the Lord will do it because he's asking the Lord to do it. We see this confidence several ways. In verse twenty-five, David asks and says to the Lord, "O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken." Or as David asks God to do what he has spoken. What a great pattern for us to use in our prayers read God's promises and say, Lord, would you now do what you said you would? And David realizes that when the Lord will fulfill these promises, the Lord's name will be magnified. So David says in verse 26, and your name will be magnified forever. When? When the Lord will be over his people Israel. When God will establish the promises that he has made. David asks God to do what he has spoken because God took the initiative to speak and to reveal his plans, not David. He says, Lord, I have the courage to speak to you this way because you started this. Because you took the initiative. That's why I'm confident. I'm not confident in the fact that I took initiative. I'm confident in the fact that you took the initiative. And this shows us a sweet pattern of prayer Uh, in our own prayer lives. Let your prayers be shaped and molded by Scripture, by the things you read in the Bible. It's important to spend time in prayer by actually mixing reading of God's Word and meditating of God's Word with actually responding back to God in prayer. Friends, consider your prayer life. Is it combined with Scripture reading and meditation on Scripture? Or is your prayer life just sending to God a a wish list of desires? Uh, A honey-do list? Uh, We are told by the Lord to cast all our cares on Him, so it is entirely appropriate to send to the Lord your honey-do list. Whatever burdens you, whatever needs you have, nothing is too small or too great for you not to bring to the Lord in prayer. So I don't want you to feel discouraged about Sending those requests to the Lord in prayer. But what I'm asking you is, is your prayer life all about that? Or primarily about that? Here in this passage, we see the pattern where David hears from the Lord. And David says, Lord, I want to turn this. I want to turn this back on you. I want to put my confidence that what you have said, you can do. So I'm asking you, would you do what you have said? This is David's prayer, a prayer life that is molded on the promises of God's Word, using Scripture and turning Scripture into prayer. Well, friends, consider how in David we see Scripture marinating his prayer life in this moment. Do the same. David's confidence in God extends also in confidence in his Word. Verse 28, Now, O oh Lord... Oh, Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. How do we know the Bible is true? Because God is God. Because of who God is, we can count on the fact that his words are true. Friends, how is your heart's view of God's word and his promises? A high view of God will lead us to a high view of his word. Do you struggle with doubt, with uncertainty that God said, uh, in the, what God said in the Bible is actually the case? Well, friends, if you are struggling with those doubts, don't ignore them. Don't hide them. Don't shove them down. Come and talk to, a, to someone in this congregation about your wrestling with this confidence in God's word. We don't want you to feel like you have to live a sort of a double life, putting on a good show on Sunday, but deep down in your heart you are struggling to believe the words that David had uttered in these moments. Come and talk to us about it. But let me just consider one evidence. Consider how God has stayed true to his words. In the unfolding of history, the kings in the Davidic dynasty have been cut off. With the Babylonian exile, the David kings have all died. And there's a long season when there's no king from the Davidic line on Israel's throne. As a matter of fact, around the turn of the millennium, Herod was on the throne, king of the Jews. He was not a Jew. Reality is, the Davidic kings and their line has been broken off. And yet, when Jesus announced his birth, or when God announced the birth of Jesus... God made the promise to Mary that the child to be born of her will receive from God the throne of his father, David. Jesus was the last king in the Davidic line, Jesus revived the Davidic line. And with his coming, there is no need of another king reigning on the throne of David. Jesus is the last king who is able to reign on the throne of David forever. He has come. He died. He was raised from the dead. He ascended at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again, reigning as a king Friends, what God had told David, the promises are true. You may have a hard time believing all the details that might be in the Bible. But God's word is true because God is God. And what we see here is that God has indeed sent the king who would make all these promises come to a climactic fulfillment. In the next few Sundays, we will look at other psalms that speak about God's kingdom promises, foreshadowed in the Old Testament, and then fulfilled in Jesus. But David gets to experience and see, God, I believe that you are great, and I believe your word is great. So my confidence is that you can do what you said you would. So would you do it? And then finally, David's confidence is in the ongoing blessing of God. This prayer ends in verse 29 with an interesting prayer request. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David realizes that what God promised to do is not simply a one-time shot or an automatic process. The promise is dependent on God's ongoing provision and blessing so that it will be carried out. The perseverance of this royal dynasty is dependent on God's ongoing blessing. That's why David asks for it. This shows that God's promised kingdom is not a one-time event but an ongoing unfolding of the promises of God independence dependence on the Lord who gives the blessings and in the, on the king who knows he needs God's ongoing provision for this house to continue to endure. Some of us may feel open to hold a promise to the promise of God, but then have no category of engagement with or dependence on God. We just want the goody, but not the relationship. We just want the gift, but not the dependence on the giver. We want the final product, but are not interested in the journey of the ongoing dependence on the Lord. But it does not work this way, and David shows it to us in this last verse. Oh Lord, oh Lord, with your blessing... Shall the house of your servant be blessed forever? Regular dependence on the Lord for his enabling grace, for his enabling provisions, for his blessings, so that this royal dynasty will remain forever. Friends, David's confident dependence on the Lord to bring it about encourages us to a similar response. This kingdom that God promised is not a one-time ticket that you just put in your pocket. And don't think about and don't need to wrestle with and depend on the Lord for. David shows us that these promise these promises for the kingdom are actually calling on us to constantly and in regularly engage with God and be dependent on and ask for and look for and be open for and hunger for His blessings, so that these promises will endure for us as well. Great promises for a kingdom that will never end. How should you and I respond? Let's learn from David. Respond with humble awe and with confident dependence on God to do what He promised. Can you do so today? Let's pray. Father, help our hearts as we hear of what you have done for your people, help our hearts to respond with joy and with humility. Help our hearts to respond with confidence in you and with an ongoing dependence on your blessings. That we would want you in the process of wanting what you have promised for us. Father, help us as David asked for your blessings. Help us to want your blessings and to be dependent on them, not on ourselves. Help us to be dependent on what you provide for our daily journey. Our Father who in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. And your will be done in our hearts and on this earth as it is in heaven. Amen.